Well, good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? Well, turn your Bibles to uh, chapter 41. Uh, this is going to be the first week in a long time that we've taken on one chapter. It just happens to be a really long chapter, but uh, we're going to continue the story of Joseph. And um, I was driving in this morning, and, and the thought hit me that um, when we read the Old Testament, um, we read it as history, which we should because it is history. But if you leave out the theology, it basically becomes nothing more than mythology. It, it, it turns from history to mythology because if you leave God out, these stories make no sense. They're, they're like myths. They're all these dreams and all these things that are happening in these stories don't make sense if you leave God out of the picture. So over the last few weeks, we've really been trying to bring God into the picture and look at these stories less through the lens of Joseph uh, than through God, the God of Joseph. And that's going to be true today as we continue to kind of delve into the area of the, the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign overall. And in particular today, we're going to see God's timing, how God's timing is perfect, it's impeccable, um, and, and we can trust that what he's doing, whether it looks like it around us, his timing is perfect in every way. And that's really what we're going to hopefully see this morning in this story, this particular part of the life of Joseph. So let me pray for us and we'll jump into it. Lord, we're grateful for this morning. Thank you for the, the weather. Thank you for just getting us all here safely. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, delve into this chapter, that you would reveal yourself to us. Help us to see you operating behind the scenes in, in ways that uh, literally blow our mind, that, that everything is happening according to your divine plan. And, and if that's true in this story, it's also true in our lives, that you are always there working behind the scenes, and everything is being orchestrated in the way that you have already deemed it to happen long before we ever existed. So we can trust you. So show that to us this morning, Father, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So what we're going to see in this chapter is that waiting, as much as you and I probably hate to wait, is worth it when God's involved. Waiting on God can be difficult. Waiting on anybody can be difficult, whether it's your wife, your kids. You know, we hate to wait. But waiting on God is highly profitable. And the truth is, you don't have a choice. You know, you can jump out and think that I'm going to speed this thing up and help God out. But we've seen plenty of stories in Genesis where that doesn't turn out too well. Nothing changes the sovereign will of God. And whether you like it or not, you are going to end up waiting on God's will to be done. So it's worth the wait, but only if you can see God in it, if you can view your circumstances in a different way. So that's what we're going to see today in the life of Joseph. So just going, going back to the end of the last chapter, chapter 40, it says that on the third day, on the third day, after Joseph has uh, interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, three days go by, just as he said, on Pharaoh's birthday, he makes a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, just as Joseph had predicted. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted so everything Joseph said in terms of interpreting the, the dreams of these two guys takes place. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. That's how we ended last week, that poor Joseph is 
he's been there now 30 years uh, or 28 years at this point, and he's interpreted the dreams of these two guys. They're accurately interpreted. One guy dies, the other guy lives, and the one guy who he asked to remember him fails to do so. Here's what Joseph said to him. Please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews. And now I'm here in prison and I did nothing to deserve it. What I find interesting about this statement is that he doesn't throw his brothers under the bus. He doesn't even mention his brothers. He says he was kidnapped. Now we know from the story that's not true, right? He wasn't kidnapped. He was sold by his brothers into slavery to Ishmaelite traders. But rather than throw them under the bus, he basically says, I was kidnapped. But he says, I don't belong here. When you get out, when things turn out well for you, which they will in three days, just remember me. Tell Pharaoh about me. There's no guarantee that if the cupbearer had done this, anything would have changed. And my contention is probably nothing would have changed because that wasn't in God's cards. That wasn't part of God's timing. But the cupbearer forgot him, forgot all about him. He gets restored, everything's great, and poor Joseph's out of sight, out of mind. But here's what we know from last week. God did not forget him. God was right there with him. Now, two more years are going to pass, according to chapter 41. So he's still in prison. He's been in Egypt now for 28 years. Two more years are going to pass, which is going to put him at 30, if my math's correct. So that's a long time, right, to have been in a foreign country. He's been there since he was 17. And now two years pass, and he's still in prison. Now, we read these stories, at least when I read these stories, I get frustrated because I think, man, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to this poor kid? Why couldn't you have gotten the cupbearer to remember? Is that too hard for you? And what's the answer to that? No, it's not too hard for God, but that wasn't what God had in mind. The, the two years is part of the plan. And he's, he's there for a crime he didn't commit. He's been charged with attempted rape, but he didn't do it. Remember, he ran, he fled. He left his garment in the woman's hands, and yet he's alone, he's forsaken, but he's not. Because as we saw last week, God is with him every step of the way. No matter what he goes through, it says the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. He's, he's blessing him. We read this verse last week, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. This is a statement that God made to Jerusalem, the people of Israel, that I, I, I don't forget you. I, it, it'd be like a, a mother forgetting her newborn baby. It just, that's not normal. That's not natural. And that's true of Joseph. It's true of us. I love this from Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord who goes before you, he, he will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, this was written in the latter chapters of Deuteronomy, which was the, the fifth book of the Pentateuch that Moses wrote, written for those people of Israel who are getting ready to go into the promised land, right? And he says, hey, God's not going to forget you. He goes with you. He goes before you. He's got all this covered. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. You're going to go over there, and you are going to face, quote, giants. You're going to face armies greater than you, but don't worry about it because God will be with you. That's the message all throughout, not just the book of Genesis, but the whole book of the Bible, that God never leaves his own. He never forsakes us. He never abandons us. We can trust him. He will not leave us. 
Joshua 1, 9, the Lord your God is with you where? Wherever you go. Now that's all inclusive, right? It's wherever you go, God is with you. Now that can be a positive, that can be a negative. Whatever difficulty you go into, God is with you. Whatever sin you commit, God is with you. Wherever you go, God is with you. And that's something we all need to remember. Isaiah 41, 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helped you. So last week, this is kind of what we looked at is that God is with this young man, even in prison. And now two years are gonna pass. Two more years are gonna pass before God seems to do anything. And, and poor Joseph's in that uncomfortable place none of us like to be, which is God's waiting room. I, I hate waiting on God. I, I know God's good and I know God's gracious and I know God has a plan for my life. I just wish he'd hurry up. I wish he would, you know, cut the slack. Let's get on with this. Let's move on to the better part. But poor Joseph is stuck there. I had a guy last week ask me, you know, it never seems that Joseph despairs, that he's always just kind of okay with everything. I don't think that's true. We're not ever shown that he despairs, but the very fact that he begged the cupbearer, please don't forget me, shows that I'd like to get out of here. I don't particularly want to be here. I don't belong here. I didn't do anything. There, there's some despair there, but for the most part, he's trying to trust God. It's okay if you and I get uncomfortable in, a, in a, a period of waiting, but ultimately we have to believe that God knows what he's doing. He, he's not confused. He's not lost. He's not gone anywhere. He's not forgotten about you. So this waiting period is one in which we have to continue to trust, just like Joseph that God has us right where he wants us. God had him right where he wanted him. Where? Prison. And again, we can question that and go, well, I don't particularly like that. Joseph may not have particularly liked that, but he was trusting that somehow God's going to bring good out of this. It's the perfect place for him at that moment. Think about that. When, he, when you're in a difficulty, in God's grand scheme of things, if he is sovereign over all things and has allowed you to go into that moment, it's the perfect place for you to be, as much as you may hate it. And he's waiting on what is God's perfect timing, and that's what's going to jump out in this passage. Why? So he can do God's perfect will. Think about that. In prison, God's perfect place, waiting on God's perfect timing, so he, Joseph, can be used to do God's perfect will. Does he know any of this at this point? No. Does he know what's coming? No. He has no clue, but he's, I think, trying to believe that God will do something great as he waits. And he's going to wait two more years. So by the time this is over, he's going to be 30 years old. I love this from John Ortberg. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what we are waiting for. That's a simple statement, but it speaks volumes about how we approach our circumstances, right? When we're in the midst of a circumstance we don't like, what we long for is deliverance, right? We want to be delivered. We want the healing. We want the financial resolve, uh, resolution to whatever our problem is. We want the relationship restored. We want that. And yet we never seem to ask, but what are you trying to teach me in the midst of this? What do you want to do in me in the midst of this? As I wait, for what I want to be the answer. Sometimes it's during that waiting period that we learn more about ourselves and more about our God. 
So Isaiah 30, 18 is, is a, a pretty powerful passage, and it's going to be part of your discussion questions uh, when we're done here. It's on the very first page of your handout on the very top. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Think about that. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Wait a minute. If you can be gracious to me, why are you waiting, dadgummit? Just go ahead and do it. But it says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. He shows his power, he shows his glory as he waits to be gracious. Because the longer he waits, the greater the deliverance. Now, I don't particularly like that. I don't like that equation. I don't like how that works itself out. But there's something built into it that even the Lord waits to be gracious. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. That is the story of Joseph in chapter 41 in a nutshell. That God is waiting to be gracious. How long has he been waiting? Well, we know at least two years, but probably eight or nine more years. That's how long he's probably been in prison. He spent most of his life since arriving in Egypt in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But he's waiting, waiting on what? On the Lord. And guess what? God's not in a hurry. I love God, but I hate this about God, that he's never in a hurry when it comes to my situation. Uh, he, he never seems to rush on my behalf. He never seems to act on, act on my timeline. Therefore, God's never in a frenzy. He's never frenetic. He, he's, he's never rushed. He, he never seems to turn around and go, oh my gosh, how did that happen? You know, he's never surprised by anything. He's never stumped by anything. He never looks at anything that happens in my life, whether I created the problem or the problem is from outside of myself. He never looks down and goes, how in the world am I going to handle that? Think about that. Your God is never surprised, stumped, stymied, frustrated, harried, hurried, reactionary, rushed. He's looking down, and he already knows the beginning and the end. He knows how, how it's going to work out. It'd be like if you turned on a cowboy game and you already know the final score, you're not going to get an ulcer watching it, right? If you know they win, you're going to be okay even when they fail to get in the end zone because they're going to win. If, if they score, you don't get too excited because you know they're already going to lose. And by now, you've probably already turned it off anyway. But see, God knows the beginning and the end. He is the orchestrator of all things, so it, nothing's a surprise to him, and he's never late. Th this has kind of hit me like a brick this week, that my God is never late in my life. He never shows up too late. He's always there at just the right time. Number one, he's always there. He's always with me. And he's never late to resolve any situation in my life. That, that is mind-boggling to me. I know of no other person, no other living being in my life that can live up to that standard. Nobody. And yet God does. I love this from Lamentations. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him as they wait, right? That's the key. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good. It's, it's the proper thing to do is as you're in that uncomfortable circumstance that you would love to get out of, to understand that God's with you, God has a plan, God already knows the end, God's got a solution in mind, but it's gonna come in his perfect timing and you wait for that salvation. Psalm 37, seven, be still in the presence of the Lord 
What does that reiterate? That God is with you wherever you go, in the presence of the Lord, and wait patiently for him to act. Just wait. You may not like it. You may, may think it's never coming. But again, this, this kid's been there since he's 17 years old, probably about 19, he goes to prison. He's now gonna be there until he's 30 years old, and he's waiting patiently for God to do something. I, I do believe he's anticipating something. So he says, don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Don't you know that at least on a number of occasions that Joseph thought about that cupbearer and thought, why didn't I predict his death? You know, why did I give him such a great, you know, interpretation? Why does he get free? He's doing his thing. He's living in luxury. He's back on his job and I'm in prison. But this kid's willing to continue to wait. Kid, he's actually a, a young adult now. So here's what happens. Pharaoh dreamed. That's where this picks up. Pharaoh dreamed. Now we've seen a lot of dreams, right? We've seen the cupbearer. We've seen the, the baker. Uh, we saw the dream of Jacob with the ladder going up and down into heaven. Joseph had two dreams where his brothers bowed down to him, then his mother and his father and brothers all bowed down to him. We've seen lots of dreams. Dreams are important in the book of Genesis. But look at this dream. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Now keep in mind, the Nile is the source of all life for the Egyptian people. That's the significance here. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump, big, fat, juicy cows. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, lean, kind of skinny and scrawny, stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Now, I have no idea what this guy ate for dinner, but this is a weird dream, right? This is a bizarre dream. And then he awoke. He, he, he awakes in kind of a frenzy as to what in the heck does that mean? And then he goes back to sleep. And behold... Seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. You see the kind of, it's, it's the same idea over again, different kind of a vision. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream, a dream. What's going to become significant is that it sounds like it's two dreams, but it's actually the same dream in two parts. Okay, and that's going to be, become really important as we move on. So he awakes. He woke up once, went back to bed, dreamed a second part, and then he, he wakes up again. And when he wakes up, he's a little distraught because he doesn't understand the meaning of the dream. Now, I think Pharaoh, like many of the people in that culture and in that era, put a, a high stock on dreams. That dreams were significant to them. They're not to us. We don't really put much stock in our dreams. They did. And so this dream bothers him. And it's a dream that's going to be really important because in the dream, God is revealing something that he's going to do. Now, again, what we, I want you to see is that God is working. God is very timely in the way he works. And this dream is going to have significance for who? Joseph. Remember, Joseph's in prison waiting on God. And meanwhile, while he's in prison... Pharaoh in his palace has these two dreams. So why the two-year delay? Why has God waited two years for this to happen? Now, could Pharaoh have had the dream two years earlier? Sure. But for whatever reason, God has deemed it to happen now. These dreams, just like the dream of the cupbearer, the baker, are God 
induced. They're God-ordained. They're not happenstance. They're not just luck. They're part of God's timing. So what's God waiting for? Why has he waited all this time? Because he's got a preordained plan. Everything is happening according to a time. That's hard for us to understand, right? I I can project out in the future and say, by this time in my life, I'm going to have this much money. I can do that, but the likelihood of it happening is very low because I have very little control over most of that. It can be a great goal. But see, this isn't a goal. This is part of a plan that's already been put in place, and everything is happening according to a very specific timeline. That's why it didn't happen two years earlier. I don't understand it. I don't know why. Why two years? I can't give you the answer. All I know is that God is working this. He's not reacting to anything. He's not just going, oh, oh my gosh, I'm two years late. I got to do something. No, it's like on clockwork, he's like, okay, time for failure to have a dream. Joseph is waiting, but everything's happening according to God's plan. Don't you know that Joseph, even though it's not in the passage, has been praying, Lord, please deliver me. Please get me out of here. I don't belong here. You know of all people that I don't belong here. Please get me out of here. And yet he waits and waits and waits because what's God waiting for? The perfect time. He's not in a rush. He's not in a hurry. He's not going to be coerced to do things earlier than he's planned. It's all according to his perfectly timed plan. That's difficult for you and I to understand because we're finite people. And and we can't make plans like that. We can't know that on this date, this year, this is going to happen. We can't do that. We can conjecture, we can hope, we can plan for it, but we can't know that it's going to happen. God already knows because he can see time because he lives outside of time. So this thing is all happening to a plan that God's put in place before the world began. Once again, that's difficult to understand, but if you don't read the Old Testament with that idea in mind, or the New Testament. You'll never fully understand how this is a book about God's redemptive plan that has a beginning and an end, and everything that happens is according to that plan. It's precise. It's perfect. Nothing is outside of his control. Look at these passages. These, These are passages that are New Testament, but they explain the fact that everything God has done, both Old and New Testament, is happening according to God's plan. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Exactly when the moment was ripe, he sent his son. Not too soon, not too late. He didn't look down and go, oh, this is earlier than I'd like to do it, but I need to do it now. No, it was exactly when it had to happen. Perfect timing. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, at the precise moment, God did what needed to be done. Romans 11, 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles Gentiles has come in. God already knows how many people are going to come to faith in Christ. He knows the number. And when that number is complete, he's going to turn his attention to the Jews again. We believe that at the end of this, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, when all the people that are going to come to faith in Christ have come to faith in Christ, 
the Lord comes back for his church. The rapture takes place. And then God turns his attention to the people of Israel. Otherwise, this thing goes on and on and on. I mean, if there's, if God doesn't know how many pe people come to faith in Christ, then he just waits indefinitely as more and more and more people come to faith in Christ. But see, there's a limit. There, there's a plan in place, and it has a timeline. It's all preset. That's how powerful our God is. That is how great our God is. And everything that we're reading about is happening according to that plan, including both the Old and the New Testament. And guess what? Your life as well. Everything in your life is happening according to God's plan. If that's not true, then we don't worship an all-knowing, all-sovereign, all-powerful God. He's a God who's somewhat out of control. He, he only is sometimes in control. Other times he's out of control. But that's not the God of the Old Testament. It's not the God of the New Testament. So it's not the God of 2023 either. God is in control. So this guy wakes up, and what he doesn't realize is that this dream is more than a dream. It's a vision. Now, I think he has some suspicion that this means something, right? Because he immediately gathers all his wise men, and he wants to know the meaning of the dream. So this, this vision, this dream has two parts to it, right? We, we just looked at it. And it, what's interesting, if you remember the dream of the cupbearer and the baker, we put them side by side. There's a lot of similarities. Both those guys had dreams that involved sevens, and, and those turned out to be seven um, day, or threes in three days. Here it's going to be seven. He, he's twice dreamed about sevens, right? Look at this. Seven plump cows, seven scrawny cows, and the second ones ate the first ones. That, that's the essence of the first dream. Second one, seven plump ears of grain, seven thin ears of grain, the second one swallowed the first ones. So just in, as with the uh, cupbearer and the baker, they, had the, they saw threes that became three days. These are going to become seven years, according to the interpretation of Joseph. So he has the dream. He wakes up in the morning, and he's troubled. He's anxious. He's, an, uh, he's got anxiety because he knows this must mean something. What's the significance? Now, let, let's face it. If you see... Seven of anything gets swallowed up by seven of something else that are scrawny and weak. You're going to sit there and go, this, this does not bode well, right? This is not good news. So he knows it's a negative thing, but he doesn't quite understand. So he sends for his magicians and all the wise men, and he tells them his dreams, but there's none who can interpret them to Pharaoh. Nobody knows the meaning. Nobody can tell him what this means. And so he starts to get into a panic. There's no one to explain except who? God. God's going to explain this. And what's significant is that Moses almost belabors the point that these wise men and magicians can't do what Pharaoh wants them to do. These men who he relies on all the time fail him at this moment in time because they don't have a clue. They don't even want to conjecture. They're smart enough to know that whatever this dream means, it doesn't look good. So whatever I tell them isn't going to sound good, and I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And so what's going to happen? Well, first of all, what's a magician? A magician is a diviner. It's somebody with cultic powers. He, he, he either does have or purports to have the ability to interpret dreams, to do magic, to do supernatural things, and and yet they can't. 
or at least they won't. Not a one of them will speak up. And what are wise men? They're, they're basically paid consultants. These are wise men, smart men, intellectual men who are, who are surrounding Pharaoh and he turns to them for advice. But guess what? In this case, they have no advice. They're, they're like dead in the water. Oh, we don't know. You know, we don't have a clue. Because they know whatever it is, Pharaoh's not going to want to hear it. So everybody just remains silent and he's left frustrated. What's the problem with magicians and wise men? Well, without God, they're helpless and hopeless. They, they, they have nothing to offer. Intelligent men who don't know God really are of no use in the long run. And that proves out true here. Remember what Joseph said to the cupbearer and the baker, do not interpretations belong to God. If you want to know the meaning to the dream Pharaoh, you're going to need to go to the right source. And these magicians and wise men don't know that source. They don't know the right God, so therefore they can't give the right answer. And what's interesting is that when uh, Moses speaks of this, he speaks of God being Elohim. What's interesting about Elohim is it's a Hebrew word, but it means gods. It's a plural word. It's used throughout the Old Testament of God, but it's also the same word they use for false gods. But what's he trying to point out? What is Moses, the author of the book, trying to point out? Their false gods are of no help. But this Elohim is the one true God, and he can help. He can give you the meaning. He can interpret this dream. He, as a matter of fact, not only can he interpret it, he already knows what it means because he sent the dream. The dream is according to his timing. So what happens? Nobody can answer the dream. And guess who's there? The chief cupbearer. Remember him from two years ago? The guy that walked out with a good interpretation from Joseph. He gets back into the employ of, of the king and then he forgets all about him. Well, he remembers. He says, I remember why is it taking him two years? He, he doesn't have a cognitive problem. This is a God issue. Some of us are old enough that we're now forgetting things. That's not necessarily a God thing. That's just we're getting old. This guy didn't remember, I believe, because God prevented him from doing so. Perfect occasion. I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, me and the former baker, and put me and the baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew kid was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When, he, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. This Hebrew young man interpreted our dreams, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. He not only interpreted, but they turned out to be true. That's the key. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. He interpreted. What's I think important for us to understand is from the cupbearer's perspective, it was who, who interpreted the dream? Joseph. But what did Joseph tell him? No, it's God. God is the interpreter in dreams. Do not interpretations belong to God. The cupbearer never made that connection. He just assumed Joseph's this young man that can interpret dreams. But what we're going to find out is, no, it's not Joseph, it's God. He's the relator of the interpretation. He's not actually the interpreter. For some reason, Joseph believed in God enough that he knew that God was going to give him this 
cupbearer and baker's interpretation, and all he did was relate it to them. And so the same thing's going to happen with Pharaoh. The words are going to come from God himself. This, this divine appointment is going to take place where Joseph is going to go before the most powerful man in the land of Egypt and speak on behalf of God. So it came about. At just the right time, he's going to finally get out of that prison, and he's going to help interpret the dream of Pharaoh, and he's going to turn a dream and a nightmare into reality. He's going to show this powerful man who believes himself to be divine, that you know what, there is a God who is greater than you and this God is gonna tell you about your life. He's gonna tell you things you don't know. See, God's behind all of this. All throughout this story, God is working behind the scenes. He was behind the dreams of Joseph, right? When Joseph told his brothers, you're gonna all bow down to me, he was being prophetic, whether he knew it or not, because we're gonna see that next week. When he told his father that you and your wife are gonna bow down to me along with your 11 sons, He was prophetic. He was right, and it's going to happen. He's behind the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. God's behind it all, and he's going to be behind the dream or the dreams of this mighty Pharaoh. See, God's working the plan, and he's working it to perfection. Oops. So what happens? Pharaoh sends, and he calls Joseph. He's desperate. Go get this kid. Go get him, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. It's interesting that Moses refers to the prison as a pit. Where did Joseph's brothers throw him? A pit. It's like he's trying to say, here we go again. He's back in the pit, but he's going to get out of the pit. And they quickly brought him. And when he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh is going to relate to him the dreams all over again. We're not going to go back and look at that. And then he says, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. That's what the cupbearer said. You're an interpreter of dreams, right? Joseph answered, no, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I've never seen this before, but it almost sounds kind of cocky, right? Not only is God going to tell me the meaning of your dream, but it's going to be favorable. How does he know that? Somehow God has let him know that the answer he's going to give is going to be favorable. The the, the actual words are are an answer of peace, shalom. shalom. You're going to get an answer you're going to like. It sounds negative. The dreams appear negative, but it's actually going to be positive. And he's not speculating. He's not hoping. He knows. Why? Because God is with him. God is sharing this with him. He knows that God is going to be favorable, and the answer is going to be beneficial, not only to Pharaoh, but to the people of Israel. And ultimately, what Joseph doesn't know is it's going to be favorable to Jacob and his 11 brothers and all their families. See, God is working out something that even Joseph has no idea about. So Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. This is is huge. God is showing this God king what's going to happen. Think about that. This guy thinks he's divine. He thinks he he is uh, divinely descended from his father, who is a God, and that but he doesn't know what's going on. He can't interpret his own dreams. He doesn't know the future. He can't control anything. So Joseph says, God's going to show you the future, what he is about to do. That, that's significant because, again, we're looking at the sovereignty of God, right? God's in control of all things. And it's like one king speaking to another, but one's really a king, the other one's not. He, he's, a, he's a fraud. He, he's a stand-in. But 
There's only one sovereign, right? One, one God who's in control of all things. And I love this, that he's going to tell Pharaoh, the God, about the future, about his plans for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh won't be able to stop him. Pharaoh, the God, is not going to be able to go, well, no, 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 that's not going to happen. No, it's going to happen, just as I've planned and predicted. And then he's going to tell Pharaoh what he's supposed to do, and guess what? He's going to do it. This guy is not a king. He's, well, he, I guess he is a king technically, but he's not a god. He, he's not sovereign overall. He can't control the future. He can't stop the will of God. It's going to happen just as God has predicted it and preordained it. So what happens? The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. It's a pretty simple interpretation, right? It's not difficult, but there's more to it than just that. He says the seven empty years are blighted by the east wind. They're also seven years of famine. Oh, there's a good and a bad. There's the seven plump and the seven lean. There's something good's going to happen followed by something bad. And he says, it's as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. What God Almighty, the God of the universe, is about to do. You're, you're getting a glimpse, Pharaoh, into what Jehovah, the existing one, is about to do in your domain. This is going to happen. There will come. Can't be stopped. Can't be thwarted. It's going to happen because God's ordained it. It's inevitable. It's unstoppable. It's already on the timeline. This is the perfect time for it to begin. And guess what? Joseph is not forecasting the weather, right? He's not, you know, holding his finger, a wet finger up and going, I think there's going to be seven years of famine. No, it's, it's cooked into the cake, right? It's going to happen. He's foretelling God's divine plan. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Now, again, we've waited a long time. Poor Joseph has waited a long time. And right now is when the clock starts for this to happen. Why? Because it's part of God's plan. It's been on the calendar. It's been there since before the foundation of the world. So you have these seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, just as God has already ordained it and planned it. He says the next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt, but afterward there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt Famine will destroy the land. Now, you've got to stop and think, if you're Pharaoh, is this good news? No. Seven years of plenty, that's great. But seven years of famine, I don't care where you live and how rich you are and how powerful you are, that is a negative. What am I going to do? How do I stop this? How do I prevent this from happening? Well, guess what? You don't. Because this is the will of God. It's God's preordained sovereign will. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. But Pharaoh has no clue what to do. All predetermined by God, it's going to happen just as he said, because it's pre-prescribed. It's already set in stone. But again, at least Pharaoh with, what do I do? I love the seven years of plenty, right? All of us love seven years of plenty. I just don't want it to be followed by seven years of want, seven years of famine, seven years of devastation. And he tells Pharaoh, the doubling of your dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. There's nothing you can do about it, Pharaoh. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care if you think you're a God or not. 
you can't do anything because it's fixed by God. The word there is fascinating in the Hebrew. It's a simple word, kun. It means prepared, firmly established, set in stone, solid as a rock. You can't do anything to stop it, thwart it, change it. It's going to happen. See, that's so important for us to understand. And even I think as Joseph is saying this, it's probably hitting him that, wow, I knew God was great, but I didn't know anything about this. He's interpreting the dream according to the, really the influencing power of the Holy Spirit. And even he's learning things as he's speaking that this is part of a much bigger plan. My prison stay was part of God's plan. It's got to take place. This has to happen. And everything's happening, happening according to God's perfect plan. So what happens? I love this part of the story because Joseph speaks up and he says, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. This almost sounds like he's uh, putting in his resume. It's like, hey, I know what you need to do. It's me. But I don't think that's what's going on. I don't, I don't think he knows. He's giving what appears to be unsolicited advice. Pharaoh doesn't ask, what do I do? But I'm sure it's, it's in his eyes. Joseph can see this guy's distraught. He, do, he doesn't like the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And it appears like he becomes, Joseph becomes kind of an unsolicited consultant, an unpaid consultant. But he's operating according to the will of God. Remember, God is speaking to him and through him, and he's giving this guy next steps. He's just simply saying, you need to find somebody to help solve this problem, and he's relaying God's will. And I don't think he's jockeying for a promotion, a position. He's just simply continuing on the interpretation, and he's going to tell this guy, you need better wise men. These bozos that are surrounding you that couldn't even interpret the dream are not going to be able to handle this problem. Neither are the magicians. He's not recommending himself. I think there's a point in which it dawns on him that, wait a minute, this might be me. But he's just saying, you need help. God has a plan and you need to work that plan. God has a counsel for you. God wants to bring someone to help you come up with a solution to this problem. But it's almost like as we read the story, well, who's the obvious one? Who's the guy that God has been blessing? Who's the guy that God has been giving success over and over and over again? Well, it's Joseph. All the way back in chapter 39, the Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. Everywhere this kid has gone, Potiphar's house, prison, he has succeeded. Why? Because God is with him. The Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. We read the story and go, well, it's obviously Joseph, right? Well, Pharaoh doesn't know that. I don't even think Joseph knows it at, at the moment, but he's just giving the proposal, the plan of God, and it's really a seven-year executive plan. Here's what you need to do to get ready for what's inevitably going to come. Basically, replace all your wise men with a wise man. This is really a slam. Those guys are still standing there, right? And he goes, you need a wise man. And they're going, what? What are we, dog meat? Well, in a way, yes, you are. You're totally helpless. You're, you're worthless because you don't know God. So he says, you need a wise man. You need overseers, qualified overseers, not these idiots. You need a better plan. You need something to help you. And he goes on and says, you need to collect 20% of all the produce grown in Egypt, and then you need to put it in storehouses. 
You need to be, get ahead of this thing. You need a plan. You, you need, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? And everything he says pleases Pharaoh. He's like, man, this is the first time in a long time that somebody seems to know what they're talking about. This is great. This is wonderful. So Pharaoh asks his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the spirit of God? It's like he goes, well, you're the guy. There's none of these guys have done what you've done. You seem to be the guy. And he's asking those guys, don't you believe it's him? And I can just see them kind of going, you know, like, I don't agree, but I don't want to disagree with Pharaoh. So yeah, he's, yeah, perfect. And so he chooses who? Joseph. Is that, again, luck? Is it kismet, karma? No, it's the will of God. So he's gone from sold, enslaved, in prison, and now promoted. Promoted to what? What the text tells us, the second most powerful man in the land. That's a rags-to-riches story if I've ever heard one, right? This is amazing. It's staggering. He's, he's born for this moment. Think about that. God has prepared his life for this moment. Pharaoh recognizes that there's something special about this kid, this young man and he promotes him to a position of power. He gives him all kinds of wealth, and then he demands that everybody in the kingdom show him veneration. I love this part of the story. He puts all this jewelry on him. He puts a a beautiful robe on him, which is reminiscent of his dad putting on that special robe that got him hated by his brothers. Then he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. That should resonate with every guy in the room because of everything we've studied before, right? What happened back in Canaan? when Joseph had those two dreams and he told his brothers, you're going to bow before me. And he told his dad, you're going to bow before me. Well, his brother said, so you think you're going to be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? What has he just become? The second most powerful man in the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. What did his dad say? Will your mother and I, your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Yes, you will. We'll see it next week. God is working this thing to perfection. Just compare these two two passages. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. See the difference? See what God has done? The negative was part of God's plan. The positive is part of God's plan. God has been working his plan all along. And in both cases, he's been removed from a pit, sold into slavery, removed from a pit, prison, and elevated to the second highest position in the land. This is God's 30-year plan. I don't like 30-year plans. I don't like 10-year plans. I don't like five-year plans. I like one-day plans. I woke up. That's a good plan. I did it. This is a 30-year plan that God has had in place to move Joseph from the pit to the palace. And it's amazing, right? From slavery to sovereignty. He's, he's sovereign over the whole land of Egypt. He can do whatever he wants, and it's also God could do his will. It's the reason he was born. So when the famine had spread all, over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. He's now in place. He's put in place his program. He's got all that grain stored up, and he's selling it back to the Egyptians. And then it goes on and says, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. 
This is, again, a picture that God's in control. God has a plan. God's working that plan to perfection. This isn't just Egypt, right? This is all over the earth, Canaan in particular, as we'll see next week. Because God's got more to this plan than just a famine in the land of Egypt. So first of all, I want you to discuss how all the events of Joseph's life reflect the sovereign hand of God and his impeccable timing. Just think back over everything we've studied thus far. How do we see the sovereign hand of God and his perfect timing in the life of Joseph? Secondly, how had the 30-year delay prepared Joseph for the life-changing events in his life? Remember, he's been there 30 years. Why is that 30-year delay so important to help him see the hand of God? And why was it necessary? He probably didn't like it all the time, but by the time he gets to the 30-year of his life and he looks back as he's sitting on that chariot, he's got to realize, wow, what a great God I serve. Then finally, I want you to look at that Isaiah 30, 18 passage on the front of your handout. How could we make that passage a reality in our own lives this week? Why is waiting on God well worth it? Father, thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for your mercy, your grace, your power. Thank you for your plan that you were working to perfection. Thank you, Father, that you're patient with us as we wrestle against your plan and we question your plan and we even doubt your plan at times that you don't seem to, be, to know what you're doing. But Lord, all along the way, you have been doing everything according to that plan that was put in place before you even made the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, Adam and Eve. You had that plan in place. And that, Father, you're working it, and we can trust it, and we can know that that plan is going to bring itself to fruition at just the right time in just the right way in the grand scheme of things, but even in our own lives. We can trust you that you have a plan for us, and that plan is perfect. May we learn to trust you in that. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.